Conversations with the Legal Academy, a podcast from the University of Arkansas School of Law. My name is Dorinda Sharp. And I'm Colin Hesse. On this episode, Dorinda talks with Josh Galperin, Director of the Environmental Protection Clinic and Clinical Lecturer in Law at Yale Law School. Galperin was on campus as part of the law school's annual Arkansas Law Review Symposium and to discuss his research on environmental law and governance. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Dr. Galperin. Thank you. I'm not a doctor. Oh. But just a, just a JD. Okay. I'll take that. Um, so you're here for our Arkansas Law Review Symposium, and it's on environmental sustainability and private governance. What are you going to talk about? So I'm going to talk about the role of NGOs, of non-governmental organizations in private environmental governance. It's been something that um, the leaders in in the field, um, in the legal academy especially, like Mike Vandenberg, who you, um, who I know has been on this podcast, uh, have been they've been writing a lot about private environmental governance, and in that literature, they talk a lot about the role that NGOs could play, but there's actually been very little research looking at the role they actually play. Okay. So I'm trying to uh, be the first to offer some insight on that and say, uh, if we have a world in which private actors, private corporations, for instance, are taking a major role in environmental protection, uh, and we say that environmental organizations like uh, Greenpeace or the Natural Resources Defense Council and so forth, if they they have a big role to play in that new private framework, then I think we ought to, you know, see what they're doing so far. And that's what I'm trying to get at. So you're looking at NGOs just like other people look at Walmart or Tyson or some of the big corporations, how they implement um, environmental standards that aren't necessarily law, but maybe beyond. In my opinion, there's at least two different kinds of NGOs in the world of private governance. Okay. Uh, there's those like the Marine Stewardship Council or the Forestry Stewardship Council, FSC and MSC, that actually operate private systems of governance. So they they offer private certification systems in which a company like Walmart can get private certification for the fish it buys or the or the wood products, the paper products it buys. Uh, typically, it'll it wouldn't be Walmart; it would be their suppliers. But nevertheless, so if you see the stamp of of the the sort of a pretty hip-looking triangular sort of fish, and that's the Marine Stewardship Council and something similar for um, the Forestry Stewardship Council. So those NGOs, they, they are non-governmental organizations, and they work between consumers and producers to facilitate private environmental governance. So I sort of call them operative okay. NGOs. So I'm actually looking less at those NGOs and more at the advocacy groups, the ones we normally think of as pressuring governments. Okay. So the NGOs that are more likely traditionally to lobby or file lawsuits against corporations. That's one of the roles they play. But they also play an important role, it seems, in uh, influencing the decisions that private companies make. So it's not that they work with the companies usually to establish some governance scheme. Um, It's that they sort of pressure them or otherwise uh, influence their behavior to try to get the corporations to um, change to change their environmental behavior. So, so I'm looking at those activist organizations, and I'm not looking at what they do in terms of their own sustainability. You know, is their headquarters a LEED certified building, or how much waste do they create? That's an interesting question, but it's not my focus. My focus is as activist organizations, what do they do to influence private companies uh, in their in their behavior? How did you get into that? I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> um, 
my research lately, part of my research agenda is to understand more about the role that NGOs play in environmental policymaking and environmental law in general. Mm -hmm. So I'm asking about the the philosophy of NGOs, about the practical advocacy efforts of NGOs across the board in environmental law mm-hmm. and what, what that means for the law. And um, when I was asked to think about this in terms of private environmental governance, the first thing I thought of was I've read lots of Professor Vandenberg's articles mm-hmm. uh, and others, and they all talk about the role of NGOs. Since I'm trying to learn more about the role of NGOs broadly, I ought to help fill in this gap in private environmental governance and, and look a little more narrowly to see the role they play here. So uh, it, it sort of fit naturally with, with the work I've been doing lately. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of a new offshoot? It, it is new. It's new for me. The, um, the, the private piece in particular is new for me. I mean, that, this is actually, it's, it's a sort of a, it's not a funny story at all, but <laughs> it's a story. Okay. So uh, Lee Paddock, who is at George Washington University at the law school there and is also here for the uh, symposium, he put out a, uh, a notice last year for a symposium he was organizing on private environmental governance. And I was working on an article at that time that had a sort of tangential relationship to private environmental governance. And I thought, well, I'd like to think a little more about the private aspects of this article I'm working on and maybe present, you know, presenting at this symposium would force me to think about that. So I went and, and presented it and got really good feedback. Um, the article, by the way, is called um, Trust Me, I'm a Pragmatist, a Partially <laughs> Pragmatic Critique of Pragmatic Activism. And it came out in the Columbia Journal of Environmental Law um, in April or so. Um, so I, I presented at that private environmental governance conference. And um, that's how I met Professor Gossman, who was organizing the conference here. And uh, she invited me to come back. So um, now I don't rem- remember exactly why I went on that tangent. But I-, I guess the point is this. Yes, this is this started about a year ago for me. Uh, the whole um, inquiry into how NGOs behave in terms of environmental law. And, and since then, I've, I've been thinking about the role of NGOs in, in private governance. So from a research perspective and a publishing perspective, as you've studied it, have you... Like, run across, oh, I want to look at this, and I want to look at this, and I want to look at this, or is this like a blip on the radar, and you'll go back to what you were studying before? I think I would like to stick with this this line of research for a little little while. Um, you know, we'll see how far, how far it can go and how, how many questions I have as I continue the research. There's some of the things that are really interesting to me that I don't have the tools to do myself are more quantitative approaches and to ask some quantitative questions. One of the things... I'm really interested in, in is the effect that NGO rhetoric, the things they say about the law, what kind of effect that might have on the courts. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm sure that it has an effect on their own membership, on the elected officials they work with, certainly on the private corporate leadership they might interact with. There's no question that that rhetoric ha- has, um, has a role to play. I suspect that there's probably some impact on court decisions as well. I don't know for sure. The reason I've asked, I thought of this question is because in this pragmatism article I mentioned, um, uh, the Environmental Defense Fund is sort of one of it's one of the protag- excuse me one of the antagonists mm-hmm. in, in this article because of uh, some statements they made about uh, what I think is a very bad environmental policy. But but they, as an environmental group, actually championed it, and I was pretty surprised. And I looked at the language they used to champion this policy, and then I read the. Ultimately, the the um, district court's opinion and the D.C. Circuit Court's opinion 
in that in that case or the case that stemmed from that policy, and was pretty surprised to see that the that the um, that the D.C. Circuit was echoing the language that the Environmental Defense Fund used. So I thought, mm. gosh, is is the language of environmental groups influencing courts in and actually making bad environmental decisions? Maybe a good legal decision. That's a different question, but a bad environmental decision. So I don't have the skills to do that. It's a it's a it's a uh, probably a more a quantitative question with some you know textual analysis and things like that. But there so there's that line, and then there's other just more traditional legal analysis lines that that I hope I'll go down in the in the future. Well, I was looking at at some of your background and saw that you worked in the House of Representatives. I did, and yep. um, on campaigns. How how if if anyway do you think that experience has colored what you're doing now? So the experience in the in the House was, I, I worked for a, a representative, um, but I actually worked in his district office. So I worked more on uh, on um, sort of local policy and, and constituent outreach. And that is relevant, and I'll, I'll say why. That's the real work of any member of Congress. It, it really <laughs> is. And and this particular member, was it was Mike Castle, who was a, a member from Delaware, where I grew up. Um, and he, he was, had been serving for a long time, and he'd previously been governor of the state and lieutenant governor. So he was somebody who'd been around for a long time and really had a, a good rapport with the, with the community, with his constituents. And that, um, that really meant a lot and, and made a big difference in his, uh, in his ability to get things done. So, so in that position and working on his campaign both, at, at the time it was a, a little awkward for me. So, he's, so he, he was a Republican. I it, it didn't have and don't really have a particular affiliation right now, but I, I tend to lean a little bit more progressive. And, um, and, but it was a job, it was a really good opportunity and I was in, in college and I, and I took it. Now he was a really good guy and, and um, by almost any standards today, I don't think any, he would fit in very well with the Republican party. So he, he, some of the listeners may remember that he lost to Christine O'Donnell in a primary. Christine O'Donnell was the woman who was famous for saying, I'm not a witch. Yeah. Um, Cause she had apparently uh, earlier in her life believed or practiced or experimented with whatever, some sort of um, Wiccan tradition. So that was sort of her claim to fame. She was one of the early, part of the early wave of, of Tea Party Republicans who were able to defeat very moderate, arguably even liberal Republicans in the um, in primaries and then got trounced in the, in the general election. Mm -hmm. So that was for me a sad story because um, I, I respected Congressman Castle very much, and he lost in the primary. But so the point of all of that, both the constituent outreach and the role of dealing with people and the fact that how one loses in a primary uh, like that is that it, it got me thinking and I think um, in, you know, has, has influenced not just sort of my political feelings, but my academic work, because I'm realizing the role that rhetoric and political strategy play in decision making and in policy making. So he, he's a guy who for a lot of reasons, wanted to try to find compromise and wanted to try to uh, cross party lines to get things done for his constituents. Right. Uh, his his um, opponent, uh, Christine O'Donnell, was quite different. She, she spoke from a very ideological um, point of view, very committed deeply to a set of values that she was not willing to compromise, uh, whether or not she thought it was better her, for her constituents. And and I think what we've seen in politics recently is that kind of strategy actually, it, it works, not just to win, but to influence people. Um, if you look at the most recent election, uh, there were a lot of voters who had voted for President Obama who voted for President Trump. So anybody who tells you that this is a purely an ideological battle 
is missing the point that uh, that you can persuade people with talking about values as opposed to, for example, talking about the nuts and bolts of policy. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's something that I began to realize because of my own early, very early work experience. So that's one of the sort of thought processes I'm trying to apply to the role NGOs play. Right. Do NGOs want to talk a lot about the nuts and bolts of policy or do they want to try to persuade people based on more fundamental values? And what does that mean and how does that work ultimately in policymaking? Is that also part of what led you to law school? No. Well, uh, well let's change gears then. Okay. And what led you to law school? Um, so I went into college as a business major. Okay. And as part of the, the business degree I was getting, I was required to take calculus. And I was horrible at calculus. <laughs> so I realized I had to do something else besides business. So I, what I really enjoyed that same semester was my introduction to political science class. And I decided I'd become a political science major. Of course, if you get a political science degree, you have to go to graduate school because you can't get a job as a political scientist with just a bachelor's degree. So I, I thought a little bit about it and decided law school seemed like something I would really be interested in. So I went to law school because, like so many other lawyers and law professors, I couldn't do math very well. <laughs> All right. Well, in that case, what led you from from your JD into back into school on the other side of the podium, so to speak, to the teaching career. Yeah, so um, this is a, it was a surprise to me. I didn't know <laughs> that I wanted to be, be a teacher. Um, my wife, uh, who came with me while I was in law school and, and worked some interesting jobs, but knew that she wanted to go on to get a, an advanced degree also, um, she decided after, after we had been living in Vermont for a little bit, after I graduated law school, um, she decided she wanted to go to the University of Tennessee to pursue a PhD. And it's very difficult as somebody who knew he wanted to practice environmental law to find an environmental law job in Knoxville, Tennessee. So when I went down, I thought, well, why don't I just email all the universities and colleges in the area and tell them, uh, hey, I'd love to you know, teach if you need anybody to teach anything. That would be a way to sort of get a job as an adjunct maybe while I'm looking for a, a more full-time gig. Mm -hmm. And um, so I emailed a, a college, a university down there, uh, several of them, and, and one of them wrote back to me and said, we don't need somebody to teach environmental law, but we could use somebody to teach business law to undergraduates. And I thought, well, it's undergraduates. Mm -hmm. I just finished studying for the bar, so I know commercial paper and secured transactions, and I, of course I can teach enough about contracts and premises liability and things like this. So I said, yeah, I can figure that out. So I taught for three years there, and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, so when I saw that there was a posting for a job um, at one of my alma maters, I um, I put my hat in the ring and ended up with it. That's great. And and you've got a, a really interesting position at Yale because you've you've got a dual. I mean, you're you're part of the law school, but also forestry and environmental yeah. studies. So which seem like kind of disparate areas, but given what you do. I'm sure there's a clear connection. Yeah, they, there are certainly students in both the law school and the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies who never think of the other one. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's, a, it's an obvious fit. I actually got a dual degree where I got a law degree and a master's degree from the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. So to me, from the very beginning, it, it made sense. So uh, I have a dual appointment. My primary appointment is at the law school. Uh, my office is at the law school, but I teach classes that are cross-listed. All of my classes have been cross-listed with the School of Forestry. I um, Law students at Yale, I think this is true for a lot of law schools, don't have academic advisors, but our master's degree students at the School of Forestry do. So I serve as an 
academic advisor for about 15 of them, and I run a dual, the same dual degree program that I graduated from, I'm now the faculty director for that. Uh, and until me, there was no faculty director. When they offered me the job, I said, can I become the director of this program? I think it needs a director. And they said, well, somebody to do a job that nobody else is doing, so sure. Great. Um, so that's going to lead us right into something I ask a lot of the people on our podcast is, what advice would you have for current law students? Uh, particularly as an advisor, you're yeah. probably full of advice. <laughs> yes, I, I'm, I'm, and I'm long-winded, so <laughs> I have lots of things to say about this. Um, I guess there's so many, law students need a lot of advice, <laughs> um, and they don't get a whole lot of it at most law schools, which is, which is too bad. The, the legal community is one that has a, a sort of myopic view of itself and thinks of law as a pretty narrow space. So I guess my best advice to students, a lot, I, the law school may not, especially like the folks where the dean's office may not like this advice because it doesn't necessarily help, help uh, the U.S. news rankings. But my advice is not to feel like you have to get a traditional legal job with a law degree. Obviously, those pay well, they're rewarding, there's many good reasons to do that. But there are an incredible number of really rewarding jobs that are sort of um, JD adjacent, that you don't have to have a law degree for, but you will be much more uh, attractive as an applicant and much better at the job and find that you have tools that you wouldn't have had without a JD that are really great. This is especially true for those who want to do environmental policy. So students are afraid of those jobs. Uh, career development offices tend to not be sure how to go about um, advising for those jobs. And there's just not a natural stream uh, or a natural alumni base or a natural network with those kinds of jobs. But I think those jobs are really valuable. And so for current students to not be worried about those and for prospective students who, who think to themselves, do I want to go to law school? And everybody they know, every lawyer they know on the internet is going to tell them no. Right. <laughs> and then those few people who will tell them maybe are going to say, but only if you know exactly what you want to do with your law degree. And I, I think that's bad advice. It's good advice fiscally, uh, it's, if, or if you don't really want to spend the time, but if you, if you can get you know, good scholarships or you have the financial flexibility and you're not too worried about spending three years of your life in school, I think it's bad advice. I think law school is a great, a great education for a million different jobs, not just the traditional law path. So it's, it's good to go just for the sake of learning? I think so. Of course, I'm a teacher, so it's easy for me to say. I'm <laughs> right. sure if I were a partner at a, at a law firm, I might feel a little bit differently. But <laughs> You never know. Um, so we are unusual as a law school because we're on the main campus mm -hmm. of a flagship um, university. And we have lots of undergrads coming. We have a coffee shop in our law school, so mm -hmm. we've got undergrads in and out all the time. Um, what advice would you have for those undergrads who are considering law school, not just whether or not they should go, but how to prepare. Yeah. So I don't think, maybe I'm, it's been too long since I've been, been a student myself. I don't think there's anything particularly necessary to prepare for law school. Um, certainly preparing for an application, preparing to take the LSAT so you do well and can, and can get into a a good school like this one um, is necessary. But in terms of actually preparing for law school, I think it's better if you, you're better off if, if you, off if you go into law school without too many preconceived notions, without having watched the paper chase too many times <laughs> or studied a civil action or all the other um, various uh, sort of uh, 
popular uh, law school stories, law and law school stories. I don't think it doesn't hurt, but I don't think it's really that helpful. I, I think I think it's worth for for the undergrads who are considering law school. Well, going back to the advice about yeah, really consider it. Don't listen to what everybody says. Don't listen to what the internet says. Law school is not not actually such a bad experience. And I think it's also worth thinking about what are the skills you actually want to gain out of law school because one of the things that it doesn't make sense to do is go to law school because it's a stamp of approval or because your parents think you should do it or whatever. Um, I, I encourage more people to go to law school than who are currently thinking about it, but not just because it's law school. I mean, there are certain skills you get in law school and it's important for prospective students to think about whether those are the skills they want. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Um, I appreciate your time. Happy, Thanks for being here. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me. For more information on Conversations with the Legal Academy, show notes, and additional episodes, go to law.uark.edu slash podcast, or you can find us at kuaf.com under the local and podcast menu. You can also listen to episodes or subscribe through iTunes or with your favorite podcast app. If you enjoy the show, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts, which will help others find us. Music for Conversations with the Legal Academy was written and performed by Josh Woodward. To keep up with us between episodes, follow the University of Arkansas School of Law on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for UARC Law. That's U-A-R-K-L-A-W. Thank you for listening.